DiscerningHearts.com presents Christian Apologetics with Dr. R. R. Reno. Dr. Reno is the editor at First Things, a journal of religion, culture, and public life. He has also served as a professor of theology at Creighton University. His theological work has been published in many academic journals. Essays and opinion pieces on religion, public life, contemporary culture, and current events have appeared in Commentary and the Washington Post. He's also the author of numerous books, including Fighting the Noonday Devil. This series explores numerous facets of faith and reason in the life of the church and the world. Grounded on the work of giants such as St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Bonaventure, Blessed John Newman, Blessed John Paul II, G.K. Chesterton, Blaise Pascal, and Stephen Barr, Dr. Reno helps us to open our minds to make the journey to our hearts. Christian Apologetics with Dr. R. R. Reno. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We're discussing the work of Stephen Barr and his book, Modern Physics and Ancient Faith, and reflecting on the tension between religion versus, say, as Barwood, scientific materialism? Yes. He's looking at the way in which uh, we have certain views about science, what science, a scientific culture, if you will, uh, and, its, uh, and its relationship to a culture of faith and the antagonism between the two. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we see it all the time. You know, Richard Dawkins writes his books on um, the blind watchmaker and um, and and the, I, the uh, Dawkins thinks it's obviously the case that Anybody who wants to be a participant in the scientific future has to renounce archaic, old-fashioned faith. So uh, really Barr is trying to um, show that, that, that uh, Dawkins' assumption, these kinds of assumptions about the antagonism between the two are not based in the reality of science, but instead are based in what he calls uh, scientific materialism, a kind of philosophy that grows out of um, scientific uh, culture that characterizes scientific culture but is not intrinsic to it. Um, I mean, in a certain way, he thinks that uh, scientific materialism may, it's understandable that scientific materialism emerged. Last time I talked about how uh, Galileo recognized that the earth and the moon were made out of the same stuff. Mm-hmm. And so the, the the primacy of matter, the importance of matter, that's materialism, right? Reducing mm-hmm. everything to matter or to physical reality was a kind of important step for uh, science to uh, to get the confidence that it could think about things that were in the past thought to be, you know, heavenly or, or something. People had a real, um, didn't like the idea of uh, anatomy, you know, um, you know, uh, dissection of cadavers was kind of a taboo. Mm-hmm. And so it gave scientists, these early scientists, a kind of confidence to um, reduce things to matter. You know, saying, you, mm-hmm. you could see how, I mean, even in medical students today, uh, my, my students who go on to medical school, they say it's, it's not a, it's a pretty kind of a taboo thing to cut a dead body open. And you could say, if, it, if you convince yourself that we're, it's just, the same as like digging in the garden, right? It's just, it's just the same matter or the same stuff that the rest of the world's made out of. There's nothing special about the human person. We're just material entities. 
it does psychologically make it easier. So you can see how that would be part. There are other elements of scientific materialism. For instance, the scientific materialism typically assumes that the cosmos has no beginning. And that made sense. You know, if you think about Isaac Newton, the principles of gravity, he thought that space and, um, and time were, were, were uh, infinite. It's like, uh, like a graph, right? You have the y-coordinate b. They all go to infinity. Remember in your, mm -hmm. in your high school class, you always put those little arrows on your That's graphs right. to make them go to infinity. How, how could it have limits? I mean, that wouldn't space. How can space have limits? So early science presumed the eternity of the cosmos, the materiality of the cosmos, and they, uh, uh, they, uh, 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 they assumed that the co cosmos was infinite. So that allowed them to kind of say that matter is um, uh, the kind of be-all and end-all of reality. Uh, and that's, that's the essence of materialism. It's the be-all and end-all of reality is matter. Now, obviously, you know, the person of faith thinks that God is the source of all reality. And God provides the, ration, the, the, the rationale or the purpose for all reality. And God is not reducible to matter in any sense. God mm -hmm. is not material, but is rather the source of matter. So you can see the obvious conflict there. But I hope that listeners can see that the materialism, and Barr is good about showing that the materialism wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't a stupid thought. The problem is, is that in the 20th century for Barr, scientific progress has actually wound up rejecting some of the main supports for scientific materialism. So he really treats it, it's kind of an old-fashioned. <laughs> <laughs> Already, what was new is old. Yeah, and, um, and uh, although it remains popular, it's no longer really supported by contemporary science. So that's the gist of his book and a very powerful thesis. I mean, wow. I mean, to sort of go after the Richard Dawkins and say that the problem with Richard Dawkins is not that he's, um, that he's not that he's antagonistic to faith. The problem is, is that he's not true to science, basically what he's driving at, I think. It is a strange mindset when you think about how someone like a Dawkins and his philosophy that with scientific materialism, that somehow he looks at religion and thinks that it does not have the ability to be able to discover or deepen its understanding. I mean, I think that's what's the great thing about the Christian faith is that it has always had in the last 2,000 years that ability to be able to come to know God and our relationship in the world by continuing to discover. It's always that, that journey metaphor, that we're always yes. on this journey to something deeper. Right, and I think that Barr picks that up. And he makes the observation, for example, that one of the real fascinating things about 20th century science has been, uh, well, I mean, it's been so successful, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the successes of, ex of explanation has been um, a project of simplification and unification of scientific theory. Uh, and, and this simplification, in other words, uh, there's stuff that Newtonian physics couldn't explain, you know. And the reason that Einstein's theories were successful is they explained more. And uh, it explained things that were previously didn't make sense. So it's a kind of uh, encompassing. So in other words, the universe now to the scientists looks more, looks simpler and more elegant because their theories are simpler and more elegant. And for Barr, this actually begins to make it seem more and more as though the universe uh, is uh, really quite extraordinary. 
And that extraordinariness is the kind of kernel of what is traditionally called the argument from design. The argument from design is very simple. It says that uh, the cosmos is well-ordered. We observe that all order comes from an orderer, and therefore we conclude that the order of the cosmos implies or suggests a cosmic orderer or God, to Mm -hmm. to use the traditional term. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's a pretty intuitive argument. It's not not philosophically complicated. Uh, no. And it's ancient. goes back to uh, antiquity, and St. Thomas uses it. It's one of the five ways to prove the existence of God. And it became very popular in the modern period because Christians thought that science uh, actually supported— so many theologians thought that science actually supported rather than undermined faith. Why? Well, because science was a great, it's like a great detective, you know, mm-hmm. and the detective is solving the mysteries of the natural order. And every solution is more and more evidence of the ubiquity and the power of order, purpose, you know, uh, law-like behavior, just like you would expect from a omnipotent, uh, omniscient orderer. So the more perfect the order, the more perfect the orderer. Mm-hmm. You and I could design things, probably not very well. <laughs> but let's say even the very best engineer, software engineer, as we know, mm-hmm. when we boot up our our computers, the very best, you know, Microsoft, all those resources, all those really smart people designing software, and this still crashes. Mm-hmm. So if our software never crashed, we would say, ah, evidence that that company has the best and most talented software engineers. So does the cosmos crash? Never crashes. The laws of nature are flawless. Ah, therefore, the creator or designer of the cosmos is equally, you know, wonderful, remarkable, flawless. Mm. Where does the scientific materialist, how does he move himself away from that? What's his juxtapose? Well, typically, typically, uh, it kind of works like this. Uh, uh, um, a scientific materialist says that all the only things that's real, all, the only things that are real are physical things, material things. God is not a material thing, therefore God does not exist. Uh, so basically, it's an argument from first principles. Um, and um, when we looked at St. Thomas, we looked at the role of arguments in theology, he gave a general principle, which is that if people have different first principles, then you, can, you can't really argue them into your first principles. They have to, all you can do is refute their objections mm-hmm. uh, to your position. And I think but this is what Barr is doing in his book. He's showing that, um, he's not showing the materialist that he can't convince the materialist because the materialist has a dogma, and that dogma is that the only things that exist are material. Mm-hmm. And so any appeal to God is going to be illegitimate because it's going to be an appeal to something that the dogmatist, that this dogmatic materialist knows does not exist. What Barr's doing is he's showing that there's nothing about science, modern science, that supports this materialist dogma. Mm. And he uses the Big Bang, doesn't he? He uses the Big Bang as a good example. The materialist historically has thought that uh, um, all, well, okay, all that exists is matter. All right, well... But the problem with the with that is that the Big Bang theory is an explanation of the origins of matter. And so now wait a minute. All that exists is does that mean that 
all that's ever existed is matter? If you say that, then you seem to be rejecting the Big Bang theory. And if you reject the Big Bang theory, then you're kind of out of sync with modern science. So wait a minute now. Materialism was supposed to be the philosophy that best expressed the reality of the scientific culture. But here we have an assumption that seems to be out of sync with that very scientific culture that it's supposed to be expressing. Mm-hmm. So it's actually a very simple argument. I mean, the, 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 the kind of, you know, I really encourage listeners to, uh, to get a copy of the book. He's a master at explaining contemporary scientific theory in a, in a layman's fashion, you know, that, that ordinary folks, I think, can grasp. But obviously the science behind this is very complicated. Uh, and we have to kind of take him on trust in a way that this is the way scientists really think about these things. But assuming that he's right about it, it's a pretty powerful argument. The Big Bang is a pretty powerful refutation of materialism because the Big Bang seems to presuppose that there was a time when matter was not hmm. or there was a time when time was not. And this is pretty much what the book of Genesis says. That's right. The book of Genesis, of In course. In the beginning, <laughs> God created the heavens and the earth. Exactly. So what was before the heavens and the earth? Well, God. But God is not material, and also God is not um, not a, uh, a creature of space and time like the rest of us. And so Big Bang Theory says that there's, there is a beginning, there's an absolute beginning, and so that space, time, and matter all have a point of origin. And this is really kind of shocking. Mm-hmm. To this was shocking to scientists in the twentieth century, because it doesn't it doesn't seem to make sense. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't? Uh, but the scientific evidence, all expansion of the universe and the kind of data that that people got from their radio telescopes and so forth in the nineteen forties and fifties, made it an inevitable conclusion. So I think that's a pretty powerful blow. We'll return in just a moment to Christian apologetics with Doctor R. R. Reno. This is Chris McGregor. The work of Discerning Hearts could not continue without your prayers and support. Please consider making a tax-deductible gift. Click Donate at either DiscerningHearts.com or inside the Discerning Hearts free app. Your generous support will allow us to continue our podcast for those on the discerning journey. Thank you and God bless from all of us at Discerning Hearts. A teaching of St. Paul from his second letter to the Corinthians. We are not discouraged. Rather, although our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to what is seen, but to what is unseen. For what is seen is transitory, but what is unseen is eternal. If you have been blessed in some way by the spiritual nourishment and teachings offered freely by all those involved with Discerning Hearts programs, please consider a positive review for the various programs on the iTunes and Google Play stores. This is a great way to help the ministry and is an encouragement to others who are seeking the best in spiritual formation to find and check out the programs. Won't you please help? It's an easy way to help give back and to be a part of the mission. Thank you and God bless from all at Discerning Hearts. We now return to Christian Apologetics with Dr. R. R. Reno. Even as a young girl, I remember hearing the, the stories about how the universe is expanding. And I'm thinking, 
well, where is it going? Where is it going? I mean, it just keeps moving. I mean, so it must have had an origin. So it, it continues to move outward and always will. So it can't be just where is the universe? The questions that we've been pondering as human beings for so long are so intrinsic. I think that's why we we cry out to that sense of the sacred. All the different cultures, right? since the beginning of time, you look at, at the art of even men who walked the earth 10,000 years ago. I mean, you see it. They're just trying to answer those questions. The argument is uh, the argument from contingency. Why is there something rather than nothing? And uh, which is kind of interesting, right? Mm-hmm. And now typically the scientists would say, well, that's not a legitimate question because there's always been something. And the Big Bang theory says, well, actually, it's not true. <laughs> right. Uh, and so the argument or the problem of why is there something rather than nothing reemerges in light of the Big Bang theory as a legitimate question. And as you pointed out, it's an age-old question. So we have that question. Where does it all come from? And like I say, the earlier science seemed to say, oh, that's a stupid question because we know that it doesn't come from anywhere because it always has been. Well, now science has sa- says that it does come from, it does have a point of, of origin. So that, re- that reignites that kind of classic question. And then the second thing that science does, the other uh, view is, like I say, the design argument on the basis of order. Typically, scientists will say, well, look, order is explained by, by the laws of nature. Uh, we don't need God to explain the order of the cosmos. The order of the cosmos is on the basis of why do the planets always travel in the same orbit? Oh, the law of gravity. Um, you know, why, why do the electrons, you know, why, does it, why is it always two uh, electrons um, that uh, oxygen and the hydrogen share? Um, you know, or why, does, mm-hmm. you know, why are there always two hydrogen atoms for every one uh, oxygen atom in water? Well, it has to do with, you know, the whatever, weak atomic forces. Or Here I really am re- reaching the limits of my scientific I don't knowledge. know. You sound pretty <laughs> scientific to me. And so, um, and so but, but uh, Barr points out that the way that science moves is actually always to seek a deeper order. Because the assumption is that the order, uh, there has, that order comes from order. Um, or as the term he puts it is, order has to be built in for, in order for order to come out. And so scientists are always looking, looking for the deeper sources of the order, which is basically the direction that science has gone. I mean, um, Newton wanted to know why the planets moved the way they did, okay? And modern physics has, and he gave an explanation on the basis of space, time, and energy, and modern science has actually asked the question, well, now, wait a minute. Where, what's the source of space, time, and energy? And, uh, and that's led to the, uh, the revolution of modern physics. Um, so they want to always looking for a deeper order, which is pretty much what the argument from design is doing, right? Mm-hmm. What is the deepest source of order? Okay, go a deeper and deeper order. What's the deepest source of order? And the answer is the, you know, the source of order is the deepest source of order you know, the source of order, the mm-hmm. ultimate source of order, and that's God. So it's a kind of classic moves that we've, you can find in St. Thomas, you can find in the Church Fathers, you can find in Aristotle in the pagan era. Uh, these kind of basic modes of intuition and argument uh, that people uh, have identified for hundreds of years, Barr's point is that they're still relevant. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that science doesn't silence those arguments, but on the contrary, it actually heightens them 
in important ways. It's a beautiful, those are beautiful passages when he talks about symmetry and order and, uh, and the way in which science, contemporary science, draws out uh, the, the kind of supersymmetry of the world. And far from making God less relevant, uh, it kind of cries out for the wonder one feels, cries out for a kind of uh, object to, to venerate as the source of the order. It is fascinating when you look at that quest, particularly in physics right now, to try to find that order. And as they quest further, the theories that are coming up from everything from uh, when we're talking about quarks or we're talking about string theory or parallel universes, I mean, the, the more they go into it, the more puzzle. It, you know, almost when you see certain physicists right now, when they discuss it, they almost like little children in a world of wonder. And yet, as they continue to go deeper to try to find that order, and in in many ways, I'm reminded of that passage in the scriptures, you must be like little children to come to me. Barr points out that that scientific progress, the key, the clinching moments are moments of simplicity. I mean, obviously, uh, science is profoundly complex, and, and it takes, you know, a uh, tremendous amount of training, intellectual, you have to have wonderful intellectual gifts and an awful lot of training to really get in on the conversation, but uh, he points out that, that um, you know, scientists, you know, they want to explain these strange things that they can't yet explain. And then suddenly it'll come clear to someone and they'll put it in a mathematically elegant fashion. And then, voomph, the scientific community often then consolidates around that explanation because of the, of, the, of, the, of the elegance and the simplicity of the explanation. So there's a kind of built-in bias in science towards elegance and simplicity. I mean, maybe it's a, it's a quality of our mind. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, for for St. Augustine, uh, you know, the heart is restless until it finds its rest in God. Uh, he doesn't mean the heart as being only a seat of emotion, but he really means it as the, the, the seat of the entire person, which includes our intellectual lives. So maybe that 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 our love of kind of simplicity and elegance reflects this kind of deep uh, way in which human beings are created in the image and likeness of God and that. Therefore, we love those things that have the divine uh, qualities of the divine, the simplicity, the elegance, the beauty, the order. It's important, isn't it, to, dare say, to have that courage to question your own belief system. Yes. And that's something that Barr helps us. I mean, that's a source of wisdom as well, isn't it? Barr has a nice observation that uh, uh, science... Um, Science, I mean, for I certainly was true for me, and I can see it, my son, that science is like a revelation, you know, and it comes as a threat and a challenge to our childhood beliefs in a lot of regards, because it it's kind of like going, it's kind of like never leaving town, and then you, uh, when you first get introduced to serious science, whether it's in high school or college. It's like getting on a plane and landing in New York City, and you suddenly you realize, oh my gosh, the world is way, way bigger than I thought it was. Mm -hmm. And that requires a, uh, uh, us to overcome or in some way challenge our simplistic ideas of childhood. Um, and I think science is a very important stage for all of us, and that includes the social sciences as well uh, as the natural sciences. It's a moment of maturity, but Barr points out that we have to be ready for two challenges in our lives. The first challenge is the challenge that science makes to the inadequacies of our childhood beliefs. And the second is 
a, a willingness to, to face up to the limitations of our scientific beliefs. So he sees a kind of two conversions, if you will. We need to be converted to scientific culture, and we need to be converted from the fantasy that scientific culture is a sufficient basis for our uh, intellectual lives and our personal lives. That really is a challenge, I think, because as you... We, we, we like to stop, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and especially for modern science. I mean, even in the last 25, 30 years, to say that this is it, this is what we know. And yet when we've challenged ourselves and gone deeper, we find out what we knew has so many different twists and turns and takes us here and there, and then we don't have an answer. And that's scary. I think for a lot of scientists, they don't like to... There are two. There's the, there's the substantive limitations of science. I mean, science doesn't tell us about the things that we want to know most about. Because what we want to know most about, at the end of the day, doesn't have a lot to do with chemistry and biology and physics. It has a lot to do with uh, how, how we want to live our lives as, as, as individuals, as, as, uh, as people, with all these kinds of deeply complicated uh, commitments that we have. We want to think about how should we raise our children? Uh, who should I marry? Uh, what should my attitude, what should my moral beliefs be? Science has some light to shed, but gosh, it does not have the answers <laughs> in, in, no. a neat, in a neat package. And then a second area that where I think, and that's the kind of maturity one has to achieve to recognize the limits there substantively, what science can really help us. It doesn't help us live, paradoxically. It provides us all these wonderful technological benefits, but it doesn't tell us uh, whether or not we should... Um, uh, uh, manipulate the human genome? It doesn't answer that question. Boy, and that's a really important question for the future of the human race. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and a mature scientist has to, has to recognize uh, the poverty of his own training when, when facing those questions. Not to say that he might, as a human being, have something very important to say, but it's as a human being and not as a scientist, I think, at the end of the day. And then the second area of science that I think uh, is the maturity is a kind of maturity to recognize that the best of science and the best scientists and the, and the most important advances and so on, it's very mysterious why, why, how that wonderful, elegant equation actually comes into the mind of that brilliant man or woman who advances our understanding. So there's a kind of mystery to the human mind and a mystery to uh, our intellectual process that we can't boil it down to scientific experimentation and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and, and, um, and I think that that's a, also humbling to recognize. That it's not like you can't sort of advance science, you know, by some formula. Uh, and some of my, my friends who teach in the sciences recognize that. They, they realize that they want their students to develop a scientific a commitment to science, right? And that really means a kind of moral commitment to uh, disciplined inquiry and so on. And that moral commitment is not itself scientific. Those kinds of dimensions, that kind of personal dimension of science, the kind of impersonal results of science, that's kind of humbling. And then the personal dimension of science is also humbling, I think, to a scientist. Uh, In both respects, we recognize the gift of science and the gift of this kind of aspect of modern culture, profound gift, is embedded in a larger human reality. Mm. The name of the book by Stephen Barr is Modern Physics and Ancient Faith. 
You've been listening to Christian Apologetics with Dr. R. R. Reno. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for Christian Apologetics with Dr. R.R. R. Reno.